Here, um, I guess the way to uh, kill the 11 o'clock service is have a 9:30 service. Um, I think a whole lot of people uh, showed up on that. Showed up. We thought that this would be the big one, but it's actually working out pretty good. Uh, just a few things. Obviously, you can see we're doing everything to sort of keep the distances, and um, you know, uh, in, in the service itself, we're not we're not singing, but we're listening and meditating on the words. Uh, a few things we stand up, we speak together. Um, but uh, we, we, we are trying to be uh, safe in every way. You'll notice uh, if you want to read more than the scriptures that are put up here, you have to bring your own Bible for a while or check one out of the library there and put it back. But we've removed all the, the various books and stuff. And all that's just the purpose is um, uh, just to uh, um, be as, be as uh, proactive in, in, in protection as we can possibly be. Also, um, many of you have probably noted that uh, we have start, sort of started a new ministry group with here at Lakeside called the Beast of Burden, uh, started up by our, uh, some of our deacons, and uh, basically it's a, it's a way of getting other people in the church. A number of asked, how can we serve from time to time? If you need something, how, can you contact me? And so we try to create a way um, that you can help around the church from time to time through the year. And right now we have a group meet for the deacons, we have it for the session, and, and, and the women's ministries have very good uh, connections, and, and so we can get word out to them, hey, we're doing something. Uh, but sometimes others would like to be a part of it. And maybe it's just a few times a year you might want to come over for a couple hours and help on a Saturday or a Friday evening or a Sunday sometime. Um, but some along those lines you might want to serve. And so, so feel free, you can get on our webpage, you can call the, uh, the, the church office. You can sign up um, either way there, and I think there's a list of things, the kind of things you want to be notified. And if something comes up, it says, look, we're going to be doing some things for a couple hours. It's never more than an hour or two, usually, like I said, a Saturday morning or something. Um, and you'd like to be a part of that, we'll send you off, we'll send out an email to you and say, hey, it's there. Now, you don't have to. You might have something else already planned. Uh, just catch the next one. But it allows a number of y'all to, to uh, really understand, you know, uh, that have asked to be a part of things, and maybe others didn't know that you could be a part of things. This gives you some information about doing that. And I'll be honest, this church has a really great volunteer um, heart. And uh, we, we save ourselves lots of money because people like our elders and our deacons and, and the women's ministries and, and the, the, the members at large are incredible servants. And so this is just to help further uh, that ministry. Well, let's, let's prepare ourselves.
Good morning, everybody. That's right. That was pretty enthusiastic right there. We, we, were, we were joking earlier, and we were saying that we're going to uh, take some of these cameras that are facing us, and we're going to turn them around and face y'all, and we're going to call it the sleep cam. And anytime someone dozes off, we're just going to zoom in on you in the service and just let it be the sleep cam. I like, like the kiss cam, but different. Um, so, hey, we've just been, been, uh, been trying to think through uh, ways to lead and, and organize here at the church in the midst of what's a really strange time. And, and so we're always having to, to, to juggle a couple positions. Uh, there, are, there are people who will say to us, man, you guys are just acting out of, out of fear. Why don't you open the doors and, and rush back in and just we'll all meet together. And then there's other people who are going, listen, the fact that you guys are meeting together is just reckless. You're just being reckless. And so we're just kind of trying to find that place that's wise. And, and, and um, in the first service, everyone had masks. There's a lot of people watching at home. I guess our logic was, to continue to give enough options that people can do what makes them feel comfortable. And so, uh, of course, this sermon right now, uh, hi, there's people who are watching it at home. They, we're streaming it. So, so that, that's kind of the first option. If you're, if you're nervous about uh, g- catching COVID or whatever other kind of cooties, you can s- stay home and watch it. The, the other one is that in our first service, we had just everyone had to wear masks. And, and it was a small service. There were 35 people there. And I could never really tell whether they liked what I was saying or they didn't like what I was saying. It's really hard like to connect to a group emotionally. Like when I connect to y'all, you smile at me with your faces. And they, you let me know like, hey, we're with you. And with them, I had no idea. Uh, then, then the last service was kind of like the wild, wild west. It was pretty full. I'm not going to lie. It was pretty full. And then this service, it looks like it's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. Much nicer for these people over here. A little, a little full over here. Uh, uh, but I did notice that there was a guy before me in last service that started coughing. And it got kind of awkward for everybody. <laughs> so, so we'll be good. Um, you're at the right place at the right time to hear the gospel proclaimed this morning. We're going to gather around the Word of God. Uh, we're going to hear it. Uh, and, and one of the ways in which we gather, we, we kind of start our, our time together, is and we're called to worship through the Apostles' Creed. All, Apostles' Creed is an old, old creed of the church. Um, and, and we say it together to confess to ourselves and our kids what we believe about faith. So I want to invite you now, if you're able to stand, and I'll ask you this question, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. As the band comes up, let me just say this. Um, and hopefully I'll never come to a time in my life where I say something like this again. Uh, I always harp on our people like, hey, listen, you're the choir you are the singers. This is not a show. But today I'm like, hey, don't sing, okay? Um, maybe, maybe hum a little bit. We're, just, we're still trying to figure out indoor projection of our voices. And a lot of people are nervous and we don't know and we get bad information and, and who knows. Just meditate on the Word of God, you know, as, as it's sung over you today. And hopefully uh, you'll hear me again very loudly, very soon, harping on you to sing loud again. All right, let's, uh, let's hear them sing.
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first Just a reminder, um, uh, and until further notice, um, when we, the way we're going to gather our, our tithes and our offerings is that aspect of worship rather than passing the plate, um, sort of the social distancing 
uh, kind of priority here. We will have there are uh, a couple um, depositories in the in back, the wooden boxes um, that one of our deacons had worked on very well and, and did a wonderful uh, job with that. We also have a, a plate on either side of um, the, the organ and the piano over here, and you can feel free to drop it there afterwards and, and do that after the service when leaving and not, um, um, you know, after we uh, pray. Um, <clears throat> the prophet Habakkuk, he writes, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law of God is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the weak surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, says the Lord. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we look about and we see that God shakes the nations and that all things are instruments for your kingdom purposes. We see the violent grasp and destroy that haters of your law call evil good and good evil, the godless machinations and corrupt avarice of rebellion are often called virtue. Lord, we live in a day in which we despise what is honorable and we exalt what should be abhorred. Indeed, the nations rage and they plot, and yet all is according to the good pleasure of your counsel. Our faith is that you are always doing a work in our days. Lord, give us eyes to see not the ends, but Jesus Christ, your divine means to your purposes. We confess, eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and it has not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. Father, we have the mind of Christ. Forgive us for trusting in the armor of Saul for fighting the good fight to which you have called us. Give us wisdom to discern not only the schemes of Satan without, but the deceptions of Satan within. And give us a love that will abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, that we may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Father, thank you that even in the midst of these trying times you have provided for us. Accept and sanctify our tithes and offerings for the progress of your gospel in the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Not me. 
Good morning again. It's good to be with you. Uh, next week when we gather together, we're going to move from talking about the, the miraculous signs of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. We're going to start talking about the Ten Commandments. And so there may be a question that goes to people's heads, you know, what is there for the New Testament church to find in, in studying the old law of God? And I think there's a couple things. Uh, you know, on, on one hand, we begin to understand uh, the reason that we need Jesus, because when you study the Ten Commandments, you, what you're going to recognize is that, we, in a sense, we're all guilty, and uh, we really need the grace of Christ. And the other thing is, in reading the Ten Commandments, we really get to kind of see how uh, we can worship Jesus in our lives through the obedience to these things that are important uh, in the old law. Uh, last week, we met together. We started talking about the, the final public miracle in John's Gospel. Jesus actually does one other miracle uh, that, that's not so public. Uh, he, he restores the ear of a man who's cut off, but it kind of happens in the dark. And, and when, when they come to get him, you know, he kind of puts it back on. Peter cuts it off, and he, he kind of holds it back on. It's kind of done in the dark. So it's not considered like a public miracle, but it, there's a miracle there. But this is the last public miracle in John's gospel. And it's a miracle that, that was so bold, and it was witnessed by so many people 
that it ultimately is going to force uh, the leaders in Jerusalem to move towards the execution of Jesus. And we're, the miracle that we're talking about there is uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. And, and I say it's a bold miracle for a few reasons. Well, one reason I say it's a bold miracle is because of where it happens. Uh, there's a sense in which they're in Bethany. It's very near Jerusalem. And if you remember all the violence that was done towards Jesus there, that there's a lot of people who are wanting to kill Jesus in Jerusalem. Uh, when Jesus told his disciples he wanted to return to the area, if you remember, Thomas says in John eleven sixteen, let us go also that we may die with him. There's a sense that, okay, they're going to resign themselves to the boldness of this miracle, but also the fact that it may, it may take their lives. The other reason that I say uh, that this miracle is so bold is because of what Jesus says about himself as he's doing it. Uh, he makes a very bold claim. He says, uh, first off, I am the resurrection, the life. And this was the last of the I am statements of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. Every I am statement of Jesus is, is a claim to divinity because the very nature, uh, the statement I am is, is identifying himself with God. But this one, he says, I am God, but I'm also the God of the resurrection and the life. And so it's quite a bold claim. And we want to understand what that means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Is it just religious jargon or what specifically is Jesus trying to reveal about himself by saying this? We're going to try to understand this today. But, but to recap, the reason we say that this is a bold miracle is, one, because of where it happens and the danger of that. Two, because of what Jesus says about himself. And three, because of what Jesus does. Uh, it's one thing uh, to, to make a claim that uh, I'm the resurrection and the life. It's another thing to start reanimating dead bodies. And that's basically what Jesus is going to do here. He's going to begin to reanimate dead bodies, and it makes it a very bold thing. Uh, maybe you remember, maybe you've got a good grasp of the New Testament enough to know that, that, that Lazarus was not the first person to be resurrected by Jesus. Jesus had already resurrected others. The first that we find is in Mark chapter 5. And in Mark chapter 5, we're introduced to a father, a man named Jairus. And Jairus has a, a daughter in much the way that... Uh, that Lazarus was, was sick and that was leading towards death. The daughter of Jairus, a 12-year-old little girl, is sick and it's leading towards death. And so Jairus comes to Jesus and he says, hey, listen, my daughter's sick. And Jesus says, okay, let's go. And, and he doesn't wait the two days, right? In, in, in Lazarus's case, he waits two days. In this little girl's case, he says, let's go right now. And they go uh, towards this little girl's home together to try to heal her. Uh, there, there is no try in Jesus. He's, he's going to heal her. And they're, they're, they're not there yet when messengers from Jairus' home come towards them and meet them. And they, they bring with them this message, Mark 5.35. Uh, they say to Jairus, uh, your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any longer? In other words, it's, it's too late. You didn't get there in time. The girl's dead. I mean, that's kind of how we think about death, most of us. Most people, they think that that once death is there, it's over. It's too late. There's nothing to be done about it. Life is over. Hope is over. And death is final. The messenger says to Jairus, leave the teacher alone. There's nothing to be done here. And Jesus ignores this messenger. He doesn't want any piece of it. He ignores it. And so he goes to the home of the little girl anyway. And he walks in. And what he finds when he walks in is a really bad scene. You could imagine the women who knew the little girl well are wailing, they're crying, the mother is there crying and wailing. And uh, ultimately, 
I know this scene too well because I've walked into it myself. I've walked into a scene where a little child was dead and all these uh, mothers were together, friends of the mother were there and they were holding uh, this dead infant and I've, I've been there before. It's a horrible place to walk into and Jesus walks in and he says to the mourners, why are you crying? The little girl's just asleep. And scripture says that, that the women who were there, that they, they actually laugh at Jesus. <laughs> they laugh at him. It's laughable. It's ridiculous for them to think that, that she could just be sleeping. And Jesus takes this 12-year-old little girl by the hand and he says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And there is this divine command. It comes from Jesus and, and it is to arise. And he raises this little 12-year-old girl from the dead. But you know, some could still speculate. Some skeptics could say, well, maybe she was just sleeping. Or maybe she was just unconscious. And, and I don't believe that. And I don't believe that Scripture suggests that. But you know, people, some were going to doubt it. You move over to Luke chapter, chapter 7, you have another miraculous resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, he's, he's passing by a funeral procession. And he sees these pallbearers, and they're carrying uh, a body. Uh, maybe it's in a coffin. Maybe it's not. We don't know. Uh, it's on something called a bier. A bier is something that they carry uh, uh, coffins or bodies on. Think about in the old movies when you would see like a wagon, and there would be a coffin on a wagon. That would be called a bier. Or sometimes the guys, the pallbearers, would be carrying it on their shoulders. and basically be a platform with a body beyond. And Jesus sees this bier comes by and the body on it, and he sees a mother there who's, who's mourning the death of her son, and he has compassion on this mother. And in Luke 7, 14 and 15, this is what happens. It says, Then Jesus came up, and he touched the beard. And the bearer stood still. And he said, in the same divine command that he gave to the little girl, he says, Young man, I say to you, arise. He just said to the little girl, Little girl, I say to you, arise. But in the same way, he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, and he began to speak, and Jesus gives him to his mother. Amazing story. Make no mistake, the man was dead. Jesus has raised him back to life. And Scripture says that everyone who's there is kind of terrified by it. Like, who's this necromancer guy who's bringing people back to life? And there's some skeptics who are going to say, Sure, maybe he was in the coffin, maybe he was being carried on this beer, but was he really dead? I'll tell you that the reaction of the pallbearers is they thought he was dead because they were terrified when he was brought back to life. I'll tell you the reaction of the women in the house where the girl was dead was they thought it was funny for Jesus to suggest that maybe she was asleep, so they thought she was dead. The people close to them thought they were dead, but there's always those who will find ways to doubt the miracles of Jesus. Did Jesus have the power to raise the dead? And what does he really mean when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? The reason that the healing of Lazarus is such a bold sign is that Jesus is making sure that there is no way that anyone can claim that Lazarus may still be alive. If you ever wondered, why did he wait those two days? It's, it's partially this reason. There, there's going to be no way any skeptic can say that Lazarus may have still been alive. Um, there were just too many witnesses there, and he's going to be dead for too long to allow for skeptics in this story. Um, we're going to read together from John 11, 17 through 44. And so I want to invite you now, if you're able, to stand. 
and we will read the Word of God together. And before we do, let's let's pause and have a word of prayer. Uh, bow your heads with me. Father, to you be the glory. Uh, we come to your holy word, expectant, hoping to, to learn from it, to be inspired by it, uh, to, to know more about Jesus because of reading it. Open our eyes, quicken our hearts to, to what we read today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right, we're in John 11, beginning in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And she had said this. She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the, uh, into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have had died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. 
And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, they're close personal friends of Jesus. They had this house in Bethany. It's, it's two miles uh, from Jerusalem, and it's kind of their home away from home. Whenever they're in that area, they stop into to Bethany there. They spend the night. They, they, they have a, a great friendship there. And Mary and Martha had dispatched a messenger to Jesus right when Lazarus' illness was really getting bad. And shortly after that messenger left to go find Jesus, Lazarus actually died. So the messenger hadn't been long or hadn't been gone long. So by the time that he reaches Jesus on a one-day journey, Lazarus has already been dead for a full day. As we talked about earlier, then Jesus decides he's going to wait two full days before he makes his trip back to Bethany. And if you think about it, it's another day back to Bethany. So if we do the math there, it's a day while the messenger came, two days of waiting, one day back. That's four total days by the time that Jesus is going to get back to Bethany. Lazarus will have been dead for four days. And I'm going to try to spare you some of the um, gruesome details, but in the Jewish world, bodies were not embalmed. And if, if you have a body that's not embalmed, you need to be pretty quick to get it in the ground because there is bacteria that lives inside the human body all the time. And as long as we're alive and our bodies are functioning well, it balances these bacteria. They have jobs. We have jobs. But when we die and we no longer uh, move oxygen in and out, no longer move blood in and out of our bodies, the bacteria begins to turn against our own bodies. And things like rigor mortis, things like swelling and oozing and smells, it is uh, not pleasant to be around. And the Jews would, what they would do is they would cover the body in, in kind of cloth and spices to try to deal with the smells. Um, in our culture, we don't deal a lot with our dead. If, uh, if someone that we love dies, our general response is to call the funeral home, and the funeral home comes and gets our loved ones in a very reverent way, treats them very reverent. They take them away, and they, they, you provide a suit or some clothing. They dress them, and, and you see them again in the, in the funeral home, and they look like a waxy, rather happy version of themselves, and, and then we um, bury them. And uh, I don't mean to make light of that, but that's pretty much what happens. It's a very sterile process. Not so in the Jewish world. You had to deal with your dead loved ones. You had to touch them and you had to wash them. And uh, you had to smell them. And some of the changes that happened to a dead body were happening to Lazarus four days. Um, he was lifeless and he was decomposing. And by the time that Jesus arrives... The house there that they knew so well that they'd stayed in so, much, so many times was full of, of visitors. Scripture just says that many Jews, uh, it's not very specific there, it says many Jews came to see uh, the family there. And what they were doing was participating in a ritual called sitting shiva. It's a Jewish ritual of coming and, and sitting at the house with people who had, who had lost loved ones and crying. If they want to talk, we talk. If you want to cry, we cry. If you want to go to the grave and cry, we're going to follow you. We're just going to be with you with our presence, and we'll cry there. It's, it's what sitting shiv is, very much a Jewish thing. A lot of people there. Some scholars would say there were dozens. The most I've read about is there are some scholars who will say that there are maybe hundreds there in the house. But, but what you really need to know 
is, uh, is that there are a lot of witnesses. It's what kind of makes us, and they're from that dangerous area of Jerusalem, and they're Jews. These are going to be some of the people who, if not were the people who wanted Jesus dead, were friends with the people who wanted Jesus dead, right? These are going to be witnesses that are going to go report to Jerusalem what's just happened, and this is all going to speed the timeline of Jesus' crucifixion. We get to meet Mary and Martha really well in Luke chapter 10, and we get to learn that they're completely different ladies. They're, they're two different people. They're not much alike at all, like most siblings are. I don't know about you and your siblings. You guys have brothers and sisters. You guys are sisters. I mean, are you, are you a lot like your siblings, those of you who have them? I'm not much like my siblings. My, I've got one sister, um, and, and uh, apart from her being just really good looking like me, we're not a lot alike. I'm sorry, that was a joke. Uh, she, you know, she tends to be a little bit of a liberal. I'm, I'm kind of a conservative. You know, we just have our own unique ways we go about things. And uh, I think about also how different I am from my wife. And, you know, they say opposites attract. Uh, I guess the reason I think my wife is so fantastic and I'm such in love with her is that she's completely different from me. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways my wife is different from me is I think she's a lot like Martha and maybe I'm a little bit like Mary. And that Cammie wakes up in the morning like before 6 and she gets busy doing stuff. And she kind of is doing stuff on her feet until she goes to bed at night, like all day long. She's always doing something, you know, moving something around. Um, she mows the yard. She re- rebuilds carburetors. This is, this is part of the reason I fell in love with this woman is because she's a maniac at things like that. And, um, and she's always busy and going. And me, I like to sit around and talk to people, right? So, so you can see the difference there. And, and Mary and Martha are very different. When we we meet Martha, we, we realize that she's got this uh, busy, diligent, even very bossy attitude, right? Martha. Martha's very, very bossy. And not just with her sister, but she's even bossy with Jesus. If you remember when Mary was sitting at the feet of, of Jesus and not helping her work in the kitchen, Martha looks at Jesus and says, basically, Lord, do you not care that my sister had let me do all the serving alone? In other words, she, she chastises Jesus for letting, Martha, or letting Mary sit there the whole time. While Mary was very different, she's, what Mary's famous for is just sitting at the feet of Jesus, just being there and listening, and, and as if Jesus is the only thing that really matters. That's kind of how she gets her, uh, her reputation, is just really understanding what's important in the moment, that, that she can just sit there and focus on Jesus. And, and in our story today, both these women, to the T, line up with their, with their personalities that we've seen already, right? So they hear that Jesus is coming from afar, and what does Martha do? She bursts out the door like the, the mover that she is. She bursts out the door. She heads towards Jesus. And what does Mary do? Mary stays seated in the house. She's, she's, she's got guests there. She's, she's, they're, they're all mourning together. And in verse 21 and 22, Martha blurts out. She sees Jesus and she blurts out, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It's, it's confusing. It's all at once. It's reverent. She's calling him Lord. Uh, she confesses his power. But at the same time, she's kind of mad and frustrated that he wasn't there. And in a strange way, she seems to acknowledge that, that even now she believes that God would do whatever it is that Jesus asks. And so Jesus says to her in verse 23, he says, hey, your brother will rise again. And Martha makes an assumption here. She assumes that Jesus is talking about the resurrection that will happen to all people at the end of time. And I'm not sure 
how good your eschatology is or your theology of the end of days is, but a lot of people just believe that, that the end for all believers is heaven, that we go to heaven and we're there for eternity, and, and, and not so. There is a sense in which Jesus talks about returning, and in his return, this great resurrection happens. He brings back to life. It's a very physical thing. It's not a spiritual thing. It's a very physical, a physical resurrection of, of everyone who has died. And, and, and Martha would know this because Jesus has been teaching this all through John. Okay? Let me show you a couple of places. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life, that's the first category. Those who've done good to a resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So everyone gets resurrected. Those who've kind of done good to this resurrection of life, those who've done evil to judgment. So that's one place in which Jesus is talking about the resurrection. That's why she might have thought when Jesus says, hey, your brother's going to rise again, that that's what he was talking about. There's another place in John 6 where Jesus talks more about this resurrection. It's John 6, 40. Jesus says this, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And then He says, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The logic is, everyone who looks on Jesus and believes will have eternal life. Jesus will specifically raise them up on the last day for everlasting life. And it's, and it's the same, like what kind of resurrection is it? What does it look like? It looks like the raising of Jairus' daughter. Dead a divine call, and a body that can't refuse to be resurrected. It looks like the resurrection of the son who was being carried and the grieving mother. A dead body, a, a divine call, and an inability to refuse to be resurrected. Looks just like Lazarus, the same way. Uh, and here's what Jesus tells Martha when she misunderstands all this. She's thinking it's, 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 it's that resurrection. He's talking about something else. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he, he ends it by saying this, Do you believe this? Very strong question for Martha. Martha, do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that whoever believes in me will never really die, but, but be raised to life? And listen, here's the deal. We all have to answer that question. You have to answer that question. Do you believe that Jesus is a resurrection in the life? Do you believe that Jesus will resurrect you? And Martha says to Jesus, yes, Lord, I, I believe. What about you? What, what do you say? If your body were to fail you tonight, if it was to give out tonight, what's your expectation? Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you take Jesus at his word when he said, everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him will be resurrected in the last day? So Jesus sends Martha to go find Mary. He wants to talk to the other sister now. And Martha goes and she goes back inside and Mary's sitting with all these other women, all these mourners who are there to sit shiva with her. And it says that she speaks to her in private. I don't know. Maybe she whispers in her ear and she says, Hey, the teacher is asking for you. And Mary gets up in such a manner, I don't know if she gets up fast or, or what, that, that the, all the mourners there think she's heading to the tomb. 
And what do they think the responsibility of someone sitting Shiva is? Well, if you want to go mourn, mourn at the tomb, we're going with you so that when Mary gets up to go to Jesus, all the mourners follow her. And so Jesus is kind of moving in the direction of the tomb. He's outside of town still. She's heading to Jesus. The, all these, these mourners are following her. Basically, they're all about to hit the tomb together. Before they get to the tomb, uh, Mary finds Jesus, and she kind of does the thing she's famous for doing. Remember what she was famous for doing before? Sitting at Jesus' feet. But when Mary sees Jesus this time, she kind of crumbles. She melts into the floor, and she parrots that, what, what her sister's been saying, probably in the house when they're together. She says, Lord, if you would have been there, my brother would not have died. And Mary isn't mad. She's not upset with Jesus. She's just heartbroken. You know this. Death is the worst. That's the worst. Don't you, I mean, don't you just hate death? If, if there was one thing we could get rid of, wouldn't it be death? It steals from us the things that we love. It leaves us brokenhearted. And verse 33 says that Jesus was deeply moved in his soul and he was troubled. And we read that shortest verse in, in all of Scripture that Jesus wept. And I love the fact that Jesus here mourns and that he sheds tears with Mary. Um, there's something about that that's so reassuring. And we think about our Savior who understands and mourns and empathizes with us. But the question is why, is, why is Jesus weeping? What makes him weep? I mean, if, if Jesus is coming to raise Lazarus from the dead, surely, in my mind, he isn't weeping because of the death of Lazarus, because he knows this is a reality that's about to change. This isn't, this isn't something to grieve over, because I'm coming with this power to do something different. Scripture suggests that what moves Jesus are the tears of Mary and those that mourn with her, that he, like, sees them, and he sees them mourning, and he, and he just kind of breaks his heart. He looks at Mary's tears, and he recognizes the great pain of, of death. He feels the human consequences of sin and the loss and the brokenness of sin. And it's not just Mary's loss. It's maybe it's, maybe it's all like this greater loss of, of all the world. Remember on the cross when, when Jesus uh, takes upon himself the sin of all the world, and he has to bear that. Right? In, in, in the sense that the Father turns his face away from, from the sin that's upon Jesus, and Jesus says that, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? There's this, this, this moment there. I kind of think there's, there's a similar moment here, and the moment is that Jesus somehow is able to empathize with a world that is full of sin and death and brokenness and loss, and he's overcome by it. He's overwhelmed by it. And he's not like one of these women who's just, who's crying out and yelling, but, but I think it's one of these emotional things that, that starts in your gut, and before long, it, it's in the back of your throat, and, and you just kind of, you got to just kind of, it overtakes you for a second, that he just finds himself weeping. They arrive at the tomb, and Jesus says, uh, move the stone. And Martha, in a very Martha kind of way, says, uh, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. And uh, remember what the King James, in the King James, she says, Lord, he stinketh. That's what the King James says. I kid you not, that's, that's what it says. Here's the deal. I told you that this was a bold miracle. And I told you that, that Jesus had resurrected people before. 
But there was always a sense of plausible deniability. There's always a sense of like, yeah, maybe it wasn't actually a miracle. The little girl hadn't been dead that long. Uh, there really weren't all that many witnesses that could confirm it. In, in Hebrew culture, there's this idea that sometimes when the soul left the body over the next couple of days, sometimes that the soul would come back for a second. And maybe that's how they were you know, kind of justifying it. Who knows? Skeptics could always find some reason. But now this crowd of Jewish mourners from Jerusalem, numbering in e- either in the dozens or the hundreds, would have to smell the rotting flesh of Lazarus. They had already sat and mourned with the sisters for four days. It would be impossible for anyone to now define or deny the sign of Jesus. And once again, Jesus issues a divine command. He speaks to the body of Lazarus. The same way that he speaks when when he commands the waves and the wind to stop. He speaks to the body of Lazarus and he says, Lazarus, come out. Who can resist a divine command? Uh, Not even a dead man. Not even a rotting, stinking corpse can refuse a divine command of Jesus. All right. In conclusion, let's wrap this up. What does the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus point to? If we say, like we have been, that these are are signs of, of Jesus, and they're in a sense in which God... Is, is bearing witness to who Jesus says he is by these miraculous things. What do these things point to about Jesus? What are we supposed to learn? I think there's something for us to learn about Jesus. There's something for us to learn about the end of days. And there's something for us to learn about ourselves. The resurrection of Lazarus points to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate power of life and death. Remember uh, the prophet Ezekiel? We get this great image in Ezekiel of, of resurrection. And uh, I used to sing it as a kid. We'd sing about them bones, them bones, them dry bones. I don't know, like if you grew up in the right Sunday school class, you grew up singing that song about these dry bones that they come about. And, and basically what happened is that um, the Lord shows the prophet Ezekiel this valley and it's full of dead bones, dead people just, just laying there and they're nothing but dust. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? This is, he gets this idea where he says, prophesy to them, and he does, and they come back to life. And, and, and we get to see this idea in Jesus, that Jesus could speak to a skeleton and say, get up and follow me. And if he issues a, demi- a divine command, they're coming. Ezekiel says this, I love it. It says, then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them. This is, this is how you're supposed to know who's the Lord. He's going to open the grave and bring people up from them. And now Jesus is doing the very thing that Ezekiel talked about in, in full view of the people. He's fulfilling the promises of God. He's the Messiah with the power of life and death. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? And so today we're all left with the same question. Do we believe that Jesus will raise us from the dead? And here's the thing. Like, if you're a Christian, there's a sense in which there's kind of two resurrections for you. And if you're a Christian, you've already experienced one. Like, there, there, there's a first resurrection, and, there's, and then there's a resurrection that happens at the end of, of, of days. In a sense, Jesus 
already has resurrected you if you're a Christian. If, if you've been born again and you're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's only because Christ has called you out from death, right? You were the equivalent of nothing but dry bones. And Christ, in his great mercy, came to you. And when he spoke to you, he breathed life into you that you could confess his name. That, that's the gospel. Like, you, you, you didn't come up to that on your own. Like, you came to that as, as, as Christ spoke that into you in a divine command. That's the good news of Jesus. He calls you from death to eternal life, and it happens just like this. But it's not just the spiritual sense. It's also a very much a, a physical sense of what's coming. There will be a day when Christ will return. And he will, again, issue a divine command. And dry bones and rotten bones will grow flesh. And everyone will walk out of the grave. Some will walk out to eternal life, and some will walk out to eternal judgment. You know, understand here that Jesus says what he means when he's talking about being the resurrection and the life. Let's review. He resurrected the daughter of Jairus. He resurrected the son of this woman at a funeral. He resurrected Lazarus. Jesus resurrected himself after the crucifixion. Jesus speaks into the life of all sinners, and he brings upon new life and resurrection. And, and at the end of days, Jesus will come, and he will resurrect all the dead. Do you believe this? In conclusion, Jesus says, Whoever believes in this, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the last sign in the Gospel of John. It's also the last I am statement in John's Gospel as well. It is good news, so let us pray. Father in your church, amen. Let's sing again. to cease. O mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Lord of hosts, you Still you love.
take any more in. Um, the world is, is wicked. The hearts of men are, are wicked. I mean, they really are. People are saying hateful things everywhere. We've seen acts of violence and wicked things everywhere. Um, I guess my prayer is that amidst all those dry bones of the people out there, that God would come and do a resurrection work in their heart. In the midst of all the hateful voices out there, don't be one. Uh, we've been the church gathered, and as we've gathered, we've heard that Christ is the resurrection and the life. Be now the church scattered, taking with you that message of the gospel, that Christ is the resurrection and the life with you. 
And as you go, take me through the love of God, the grace of Christ Jesus, the Son, and the fellowship of, of the Holy Spirit until we meet again. Let's hear that one more time. Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. You will lead us through the fiercest battle. Nowhere else will we go with the Lord of hosts. You are with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. You will lead us through the fiercest battle. Nowhere else would we go with the Lord of hope. Lakeside, it was wonderful to worship with you again. I cannot wait to see you again next week. God bless.